Okay, thank you. Tonight's topic is at Larry's request. For several years now, he's been asking me to give a talk on study and practice. And I've always avoided it because I thought a talk on study and practice would be pretty boring. Just say, okay, read more good dharma, any questions? End of talk. Um, but then I thought about a story that he told me a little while back. This was back when Access to Insight first got started. And he called me up one time and said, you know, you're making an honest man out of me. And I said, how is that? And he said, well, I've been giving dharma talks. And only recently have I found people at the end of the talk raising their hand and saying, well, on Access to Insight, I read what the Buddha actually said on this topic. And so Larry discovered that he had to actually read what the Buddha said on various topics before he talked on those topics. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's good to, at the very least, keep your teachers honest if you read as well and know what, what the Buddha had to say on things. His complaint, and the reason he asked me to give this talk, was that a lot of you practice quite a lot and he says you don't study enough. <laughs> and I can think there are several reasons for that. One is this is you know, a center of people having to study other things all the time, and the idea of having to come to a meditation center and study more is just a little bit too much to take. Um, secondly, there's a long tradition that you will hear from the Taya Johns and also from the Zen Roshis that you, know, you shouldn't study, you should you know, focus your attention on your practice. That's where the real work is done. And then the third problem is the issue of what is the nature of this practice that we're doing. If you define mindfulness simply as bare awareness, and you define metta as loving-kindness and being a natural quality of the mind, what do you need to study? Everything is kind of right there in the present moment for you just to pick up. Um, with regard to that first problem, the fact that you're already studying too much, I can't make any suggestions about that topic except that you, know, you have to have a sense of priorities, what's really important in your life. Is your, is your career going to be so all-consuming that you can't have some time to stop and kind of look into understanding your own mind better through looking at, say, how people in the past have looked at the mind? As for the Ajans and the Roshis, it turns out that a lot of them also studied quite a bit. In fact, they're assuming when they say don't study anymore, they say any more. Okay, they've studied quite a lot. And now is the time to practice. And but you know, you, you hear about the various Ajans, and they all, they all had a good background in study. Um, you read about Ajahn Chah and his very direct way of speaking. You actually look at Ajahn Chah's talks in Thai, and he uses quite a lot of technical vocabulary. Um, and when it gets translated into English, that techni the technicality gets kind of smoothed out. But it's there in the Thai. In fact, he took study so seriously as a result of one of his teachers who taught him Vinaya, which is the disciplinary. Uh, rules of the monks. There was one night when, after Vinaya class, later that night, there was a knock on his door, and it was his Vinaya teacher. And he said, what's up? And he says, well, today I taught you something wrong, and I want to, I want to clear up the mistake. And John Chow said, well, can't this wait till tomorrow? And he said, I might die tonight. I don't want to leave you with a misunderstanding. And John Chow said, whoa, they take it this seriously. And so, he's, <laughs> so he decided he was going to take it that seriously as well. So when they're talking about not studying, they say, okay, you've studied enough. When you have a good background, okay, then you can put it aside and actually start getting more focused on your practice. As far as the actual practice itself, one with, turn, with regard to mindfulness, the Buddha didn't, didn't define it as bare awareness. He's defined it as a quality of your memory, the things you remember as you bring into the way you shape your experience. And he, in fact, he didn't even say there was such a thing as bare awareness. Awareness is shaped by your past intentions and your past memories and your past 
past experiences. And so you want to have some good things to remember about how you should go about shaping your experience now. This is what the study is for, is you learn how to stock your mind with some good information about what's a skillful way, what's an unskillful way to approach different issues, to approach different parts of your life. So mindfulness actually indicates that you should be studying so that you have good memories and, and useful concepts to bring to the practice. We all know that eventually the mind is going to go to a point when it reaches the end of the practice. It goes beyond concepts, but there are certain concepts that are useful for getting you there and other concepts that are not. And so you want to learn how to stock your mind with the good concepts. As far as metta, um, as the Buddha said, it's not more innate to us than greed, aversion, and delusion. I mean, there's good, there are good qualities to the mind, there are unskillful qualities to the mind. Neither is more innate than the other. So you can't just look into the depths of your heart and expect that this wonderful metta is just going to come out and you know, guide you as to what you need to do. Even when there is a feeling of goodwill for others, we can really misunderstand what it means to have goodwill. We can have good intentions, but the intentions may not be skillful. And again, this is why you might need to look back and get a sense of what the Buddha said about what's a skillful way of dealing with someone who is dying, what's a skillful way of de- dealing with um, people that you care for, but are going through different forms of suffering. And so it's good to have a good background in, in, some, in some of the other concepts, aside from hoping that you could just depend on your own innate nature to show you the way through. Um, and as Larry has probably told you many times, the practice is a skill to be developed. And with the, as with any skill, you need a certain amount of guidance as to what works, what doesn't work in the past, so you're not having to reinvent the Dharma wheel every time you make a decision. Um, and you see this in, the, in the, the teachings as well. We're not here to arrive at right view, and we don't view right view as something, just a theory, and then you put the theory aside and then actually do the practice. Right view itself is a way of practicing. It's a way of getting your mind in shape so that you can actually approach, approach the present moment in a skillful way. There's a term in Pali, the word is atta, A-T-T-H-A. Um, we don't hear it much here in the States. In, Tha- in Thailand, it's often, often paired with dhamma. Um, there's dhamma and there's atta. The dhamma is basically the words of the teachings. Atta is an interesting concept. It means both the meaning of the words, it means benefit, the things that you would benefit from the words, and also what the purpose of the words are. So in, we're not just looking at what the means, words might say in time of describing reality out there. The words are actually meant to lead us to relate to them in a certain way that comes to our benefit. You say the words are not just descriptive, they're also performative. They're actually are supposed to work on us, give us some ideas about how to shape our, our thinking, how to shape our thoughts and our words and our deeds. So it's a good concept to hold in mind that the words are not there just to describe things out there. But they're also for you to sort of look at, use to look at yourself and say, okay, what should I be doing based on this? This relates to a second point, which is that right view is part of the path. You start with right view to get your views straight as to what's going to work and what you know what we're doing this for and what the big problem is. Um, and then from that, then you can start sorting things out. Now, right view is not just a matter of saying, hey, there are four noble truths, and can you, you can probably all give me all four? Um, there was that. Although there was that article, did you see it in Tricycle website a while back about the discovery of the fifth noble truth? <laughs> I, I stick with the Buddha on this one. Um, each of the truths has a duty. You know, suffering is, or stress, dukkha is the word, is meant to be comprehended. Um, this cause, uh, which is three types of craving that lead to becoming, this is to be abandoned. 
the cessation is something to be comprehended and find the path is to be developed. So each of these truths carries a duty with it. And so you want to know when you're looking at your experience, okay, where does this particular experience fall on this map? And from that you can decide, okay, what do I need to do in response to this particular aspect of my experience? And as the Buddha said, our experience is not something that we simply receive, but we're also shaping. The fact that you're experiencing something right now in the present moment has an element of present intention. Part of it is the result of past karma. Part of it is the intentions you're bringing right now. The simple things like, you know, what are you paying attention to? What are you not paying attention to? Um, there are certain potentials for pain or pleasure in your body right now. You could focus on the potentials for pain and make yourself really miserable for the next hour. You could focus on the potentials for pleasure and have a really blissed out kind of state. Or you could be focusing on my words, in which case I can't guarantee either plain pain or pleasure. Um, <laughs> there was a, a woman who brought one of her friends to a meditation session we had one time at the monastery and um, at the end of the hour. And I'd, it had been a really nice sit. We were sitting out under the trees. It was nice San Diego weather. And she came out and she said, I have never suffered so much in my life. Um, never came back. Uh, and it's, it's a question of, okay, what are you going to focus on? You're focusing on the fact that here I am sitting here, they can't move. You know, there's this dumb white guy sitting up at the top and in front of me, you know, speaking. Um, this is miserable. Um, you could focus on that, or you could focus on things that would actually be more beneficial for you in, the, in now and on in the future. You need guidance in what, how you're going to shape your experience. This is what the need for study comes down to. So that you're not just willy-nilly shaping your experience and not being sensitive to it. I mean, it's the fact that you study that you realize, okay, okay, I am shaping my experience. You learn this by listening. You learn this by reading. And then you can think about it. The Buddha basically says there are three stages to how we comprehend things. The first is to listen. There's a certain lesson of level of understanding that comes along with that. Listening here also covers reading now. But from the Buddhist point of view, when you're listening to Dharma talk, you're already studying. This is what study is, is taking in information. The second point is when you start thinking things through. Okay, what implications do these have? Do these teachings work together? Do they fit? Do they not fit? What do they fit? And how do they fit in terms of what I've already learned from my experience? What new insights do they give me into my experience? There's ways you can come to a deeper understanding of that. And then the final level is that you actually try to develop the qualities that are being talked about. And you gain a different level of understanding there. And this is why, of course, when we say talk about study as part of the practice, it's leading to this element of the understanding that comes from when you actually try to develop concentration, or actually try to develop mindfulness, develop all the other good qualities on the path. Now, the Buddha wouldn't have you just listen and think about, or listen in, or or develop in just any old way. There are certain people he would recommend that you would listen to others. He'd say you might want to be a little bit more wary of certain things you should listen to, certain ways of thinking, and certain ways of developing. And this, when he, when he explains this, he gets into a, 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 a set of teachings which are called the, the factors for stream entry. Now you may not be aiming at stream entry right now, but these are basically good factors for learning how to relate to how you study, relate to how you take that study and you bring it into practice. Which This is where the art comes in, in that title that was posted out there. The Art of Study and Practice. It basically four things. One, you should look for people of integrity. Two, you listen to the true dharma. Three, you apply appropriate attention. And we'll get into the meaning of these terms further, further on. And then finally, you practice the dharma in accordance with the dharma. 
so that you can get the results that, these, that this is aimed at. In terms of people of integrity, the Buddha says basically there are two tests. One is you hang around the person for a while and you ask, okay, does this person is there, does it have any qualities in terms of greed or aversion or delusion that would make this person, one, claim to know things that he or she didn't know, two, tell other people to do things that were not really in those people's benefit or for their, for their own best interests. Now you want to hang around people so you can see this sort of thing. I mean, there are a lot of people out there who are really appealing on, on the media, but you want, if you would say, oh, this is, if there's somebody I really want to follow, you want to be near that person so you can actually see how that person interacts with other people. And as the Buddha pointed out, if you're going to know a person of integrity, you have to have some integrity yourself. You have to look into, why am I here? What am I here for, for the practice? If I'm here to find the easiest way out, um, maybe you should start looking at, at your own intentions. And ask yourself, what what do I want? I was reading years back about a case. There was a community where the, there was a big scandal about the behavior of the teacher. And there was a book written about the scandal. And I started out feeling really sympathetic for the t students of the teacher, thinking, boy, this teacher really pulled the wool over their eyes. And then as I was reading along, I began to realize that the students were there, hoping that they someday could be in a position of the teacher where they could pull the wool over other people's eyes. And I pretty much lost my my sympathy for the students at that point. Some people come into the practice and their intentions are not all that honest. So if you want to get the best out of the practice, the first is to have to look at your own intentions. Why am I here? How can I honestly figure out what's wrong with my mind? And am I willing to do whatever is required um, in order to straighten out my own mind? In terms of listening to the true dharma, the Buddha gives a couple of tests for what counts as true dharma and what doesn't. One of the best tests is a series of qualities that he taught to a stepmother. And these come down to eight qualities that you look for as to when you put the dharma into practice, where is this going to lead? Um, two of the qualities have to do with the goal of the practice. He says, this is what I'm doing when I'm doing this practice. Does this lead to dispassion or does it lead to further passion? Does it lead to being fettered in various ways in the mind, or does it lead to the loosening of fetters in my mind? Those are the goals that you're aimed at. Then there are the means. Three qualities have to do with the means. Is this making me more content with my material things, or is it making me less content with my material things? Is this conducive to making me more willing to put an effort into trying to do what is skillful and abandon what is unskillful, or am I getting lazier as I do this? Buddha has a great passage on laziness compared to persistence, and it basically comes down to, he says there are times when you're hungry, that's a cause for laziness, you're, um, you've eaten too much, that's a cause for laziness, you're going to go on a trip, you've come back, come back from a trip, you're sick, you've just recovered from an illness. In each of these cases he talks about the, how you can rationalize this as a reason for, I've got to rest, I can't practice now. And then he says the causes for persistence are, you haven't eaten enough. <laughs> You have too much food, <laughs> you're going to go on a trip, you're coming back from a trip, you're sick, you're recovered from an illness. In this case, you can rationalize it in a different way. You can say, I'm going to go on a trip, I've got to practice now because when I'm on the trip, it's going to be tiring. Or when you're sick, you say, I could die from this illness, I better practice as much as I can. So the difference really is in your attitude rather than with the outside circumstances. The third quality, or means, of, of means here that the Buddha was recommending is what the quality of called shedding. When you're practicing something, are you learning how to shed your pride? Are you learning how to shed your uh, inability to deal with difficult situations? 
Are you learning how to shed any desire for revenge? One of the best revenge stories is in the Pali Canon. Look it up. It's on Access to Insight. Go into the section on, on the Vinaya, and there's a story of Prince Dikabu, whose parents were killed by this other king, and he's planning vengeance. He sneaks in, and he actually gets it, works his way into the service of the other king. He first works for the, in the elephant stables near the palace, and he plays the flute for the elephants. I don't know if you know about elephant care in Asia, but they take really good care of their elephants. They play music for them at night, um, as they do for cows here in the States. Um, I used to work at a record store when I was a teenager, and I had a very small allowance that I could use to buy records. And I was very jealous of this one farmer who would come in once a month and buy up a huge stack of records for his cows. Because <laughs> he said the cows get bored listening to the same stuff for every month, and so he would <laughs> Well, they, they took care of elephants back in those days in pretty much the same way. So Prince Dikabu goes in, plays this flute for the elephants. Of course, it, the flute music wafts into the palace, and the king likes this. And so he says, bring me that flute player. So the flute player comes in, and he plays for the king, and the king says, okay, now you're part of my personal service now. And Dikabu works with in such a way that he works his way into the king's affections until they're, they're, he trusts him implicitly in, in every way. He gets up in the morning before the king and goes to bed at night after the king. And so one day they're out on, a, on a, an excursion and with the rest of his troops, and Dikabu drives this chariot in such a way that they get lost from the troops. So it's just the two of them out in the forest, and the king says, I'm tired. And so he wants to rest, and so he, sits, he lies down with his head in Dikabu's lap. And Diku has his sword. He says, this is the moment I've been waiting for. And then he remembers what his father said right before he died. He says, don't look too far, don't look too close. And he says, "For you know, for, um, animosity is never settled through animosity, it's settled through lack of animosity. So he puts his sword back in the scabbard. And then he starts thinking about this king again. He says, now this king really did a lot of damage to my family. And so he pulls the sword out again, he's ready to end it. And then he thinks about what his father said and puts it back. Three times. Finally, the king wakes up in fright. He says, I had this horrible dream that Prince Dikabu had followed me, because he doesn't know that this is Prince Dikabu. And, um, and so the prince grabs him by the hair and pulls out his sword and says, Do you know who I am? <laughs> and then the king pleads for his life, and the prince says, No, I have to plead for my life. If we, if we grant each other life, then we'll be safe. And so the king, they pledge that they're not going to harm each other. They go back, and then the king asks his... Um, his ministers, suppose we found Prince Dikabu, the son of this other king that we defeated, what would you do with him? And some of them say, we'll cut off his hands, and others say, we'll cut off his feet, and others say, we'll cut off his feet and his hands. <laughs> and the others say, we'll cut off his nose, we'll cut off his ears, we'll cut off his nose and his ears. Um, we'll kill him, cut off his head. And the king says, okay, this is Prince Dikabu, don't harm him. We've pledged our lives to each other. And the Buddha gave this talk to a group of monks who had split up basically what was over one monk who hadn't flushed the toilet. <laughs> and, and it had exploded into this huge issue that had split the monastery. And, <laughs> and the Buddha was saying, you know, here it is, people, you know, noble princes and warriors who live by the sword, even they are willing to bury their differences. You know, why can't you bury your differences? And the monks said, okay, you're the Buddha, you stay out of this, we're taking care of our own business. So the, the Buddha leaves. And then the lay people, of course, get very upset that the monks drove the Buddha away, so they starve both sides. <laughs> and then the Buddha comes back. Um, 
than the, the monks make up. So one of the things we have to learn how to shed is our desire for revenge against people who have harmed us. Another we have to, thing we have to learn how to shed is our pride. Now if you're practicing a dharma that advises that and helps you with that, okay, that's true dharma. Okay. Um, then there's the question of the impact that our teachings have on other people. And there are three things that the Buddha emphasizes. One is that we have to be modest about our attainments, you know, whatever it's doing. We don't go to a jhana retreat and come out and say, I was in the fourth jhana. How about, what kind of jhana were you in? <laughs> you can keep quiet about that. Um, there's a story in the canon about this one young novice who was able to levitate up to the Himalayas every day and get a bowl full of water from that lake that's near Mount Gailash and bring it back down to his, to his teacher. But he said he didn't want anybody to know. That's the kind of dharma we're going to practice. Um, there's another story in the commentaries about a monk who was practicing, doing the practice of not lying down at night. He'd sit up all night and, and meditate. And he didn't want anybody to know. In fact, the other monk who was sharing his hut didn't even know that this monk was practicing that. Until one night there was a, a lightning storm outside and the other monk was lying down, but as the lightning flashed and, and he saw the silhouette of this other monk sitting in front of the window, he asked him, oh, are you, are you observing the sitter's practice? And the monk lies down and he says, no. He didn't want anybody to know. Then the next night he took it on again and continued. So that's the kind of practice we want, is that we're not trying to show off to anybody. Um, second aspect is that we don't want to get entangled with a lot of people. We don't want to get involved in a lot of projects that just get us more and more and more and more entangled with others. And then finally, we want to be unburdensome. We don't want to place a burden on other people through our practice. Um, there's a story in, they tell in the canon where uh, there were some monks who decided to start competing with one another who had the nicest hut. <laughs> and so when they would see lay people, they'd say, you know, give, give clay, give this, give an ox, give a person to work all these other things. And so it got to the point where the people in that village, when they saw monks coming, they would close the door, they'd turn the other way. Um, maybe in, even on seeing cows in the distance, thinking that they were monks, they would run away. Where did this get to the Buddha? And so he calls the monks together, and he talks to them about how he doesn't want them to be burdensome on the lay people. And so he tells two stories. One of them is about a, a monk who's going to a a, marshy, uh, a forest, and there's a marsh near the forest, and every night these birds come into the marsh and make a big noise. And so he comes to see the Buddha and says, you know, I, I'd, I'd really like to stay in that forest, but there's this marsh nearby and the birds are pretty noisy all night. And the Buddha says, you want those birds to go away? Get up at the first, uh, first watch of the night and make an announcement to the birds. He says, good birds, pay attention to me. I would like a feather from each of you. <laughs> Second watch of the night, good birds, pay attention to me, I would like a feather from each of you. Third watch of the night, same thing. And the birds go away. <laughs> this monk knows no bounds. So, so these are some of the qualities you want to look for in terms of your practice. When you actually put a particular teaching into practice, does it lead you to being more fettered and more passionate or less? Does it lead you to being less content with what you've got or more content? More persistent, less persistent. Are you able to shed things, or are you holding on to some old grudges? Um, what is your impact on other people around you? Are you being modest? Are you being unburdensome? Are you being unentangled? That's true dharma. So again, the dharma is actually tested through the practice. And the way you do that is through that third quality, which the Buddha called appropriate attention. Now, appropriate attention means looking at things in terms of the Four Noble Truths and the duties appropriate to them. So you look at your life and 
it's it's in other words, it has nothing to do with what I feel, what I like, um, the other things that you tend to. If you if you have, to have yourself as your main interest, and that's going to the duty is to look after yourself and to look after your your own self interest. But the Buddha says, if, you know, if your real self interest or your real interest would be in putting an end to suffering, then you look at things simply in terms of the four noble truths, a little bit more impersonally. This requires that you step back a bit and look at this quality in my mind right now. Where would I? Where, do, where does it lead if I follow this quality? Uh, is it leading in a good direction? Is it leading in a bad direction? Is it leading to more stress or is it leading to less? And this is where the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness come in useful. He's you know, he probably heard about the four foundations of mindfulness or the four establishings of mindfulness. The fourth one is a, ser- is a list of Dharma topics, and it's pretty, usually read as just seeing, okay, this thing is there, it's either present or it's not present. But the Buddha is like not saying that. He says, if you see some of these qualities come up, then the question is, is this skillful, is this not skillful? He's giving you different frameworks for looking at your experience. The first framework is the Four Noble Truths, which is seeing things, where's the stress, okay, how does he identify stress? He doesn't say life is suffering or life is, he says stress, whatever kind of stress you're suffering from, and we're talking mainly about mental stress here, it's coming from clinging to the five aggregates. Now it's like like explaining something that's, you know, that Jesus is actually Michael of Nebutron. It's, It's pretty weird, you know, it's very tactical language, which doesn't sound, at the beginning, doesn't sound like much of an explanation, but actually, as the Buddha is saying, it's the way the mind feeds on these five aspects of your of your awareness. That's what the suffering is. So he's giving you a way to focus on comprehending when I'm suffering from something. The question is, what am I clinging to? Am I clinging to a particular perception of my body? Am I clinging to a particular feeling? Am I clinging to a particular perception of things, the labels that you put on things? Am I clinging to a particular kind of thinking about things? Am I clinging just to the idea that I want to be aware of something? Okay, that When you're feeding on these things, there's going to be suffering. So he's giving you a definition for how you look at wherever, wherever there's suffering in your life right now. Try to look at it in, in these terms, what the aggregates are. One of the reasons I think he talks about aggregates in these terms, and why does he choose these five things in your experience as objects of clinging? Because when we feed, we tend to get engaged in these five aggregates. The aggregates are not piles of gravel. They are activities. And the first one is, suppose that you're, you're hungry. Okay, there's the form of your body that you're trying to maintain, and there's the form of the thing you're going to feed on. The feeling there would be the feeling of hunger that you're trying to get rid of, and the feeling of pleasure that you're trying to pursue by feeding. The perception there would be your perception, what kind of hunger do you have? Do you have a hunger for a donut right now, or is it a pizza, or is it what kind of food is that you're hungering for? Or would you like a little bit of affection? Is that the kind of hunger you've got? So that's perception, trying to identify what is the nature of my hunger right now. And then the other aspect of hunger, of perception, is trying to perceive what is food out there and what's not. What's not food? Is this going to assuage my hunger, or is this not? Or is it going to be? If it's, I can't find anything else, so it'll just be kind of a stopgap measure. That kind of perception. I mean, this is what little kids do all the time. They come across, they come across something. Where does it go? The first thing goes in their mouth. Is this food? Is this not food? That's the big question. Fabrication is the question of what do I have to do in order to get that food? Where is the pizza shop tonight? Do I have enough money for my pizza shop? If I don't have enough money, whose money can I borrow? And you figure out how you're going to get your way over to that pizza. You know, that's fabrication. Or you've got the you've got the food, but it's a raw potato. What do you have to do? We have to fix the raw potato. That's also fabrication. 
and then finally consciousness is your awareness of these things. So it's the way we, this is, these are very basic processes in the way we feed, and the Buddha says we feed off our ways of feeding, and that's why we suffer. So that's why he divides things up into those five aggregates. And so with regard to each of these four noble truths, there's going to be a, a duty in terms of the aggregates is, okay, why am I so obsessed with this particular way of perceiving? Why am I so obsessed with this particular way of fabricating things? Can I, can I change? What's the craving that's leading to that? That gets to the cause of suffering. So the Buddha's giving you a framework, and then he's giving you a second, look at what's happening in your life, see if you can locate it in this framework, and then you'll have an idea of what to do. Similarly, when he talks in, the, in these, this fourth foundation of mindfulness about the six senses, he's not saying just, okay, notice when something happens at the eye or something happens at the ear. He says, look, is, is the mind getting fettered to anything that you're looking at? Is it getting fettered to anything that you're listening to? And the fettered here is just get really passionate about something. And a typical example, then how can you get rid of that fetter? And this, this is a good framework for using when you're going through daily life, dealing with people at work, going down the street. You notice things coming in, okay, immediately see your mind get reacting to something that you're seeing or you're listening to. You've got to work at that point right there. So he's reminding you, just don't let things come in and sort of gather up all this garbage in the course of the day, which you then have to basically expel before you meditate at night. Try to keep this, you know, if you have a garbage can, think of a hole at the bottom. Everything comes through and just goes right through the hole. For instance, when you're at work and someone's saying something really nasty, the Buddha's recommendation is you think, okay, an unpleasant sound has made contact at the ear. <laughs> now, for how many of us does it stop there? You know? <laughs> and so if you think, well, that's just an unpleasant sound making contact at the ear, what do I, how do I react to unpleasant sounds? Okay, then you then you can deal with it a lot more effectively. Then why the hell did he say that? You know, Why is he treating me with such disrespect? And all the, the narratives that you build around it. You try to hold it back. Okay, then unpleasant contact is made, sound has made contact at the ear. How do I not let that get in and affect my mind? And that way, if the person really did say something nasty, you're in a much better position to, res position to respond in a more skillful way, rather than taking it as a wound. So it's, it's an instruction in how to deal with things that are happening, and so that you're not going to be responding or shaping the experience in an unskillful way. Similarly with the other two lists, well, there's actually three more lists. There's the list of the five hindrances and the list of the seven factors of awakening. When you're sitting down to meditate, the first question is, okay, when something's coming up in my mind that's getting in the way of my meditation, what kind of hindrance is this, and how do you deal with that? Is this sensual desire? Then how do you deal with sensual desire? If this is anger or ill will, how do you deal with that? Sleepiness, restlessness and anxiety, uncertainty. This, this is kind of a list that you can go through. Okay, what's the problem right now? And then how do I deal with that? Like with uncertainty, you say, well, I really don't know if this practice is good for me or not. And you say, well, stay with your breath. The breath is coming in. You know it's going in. The breath is going out. You know it's going out. You can be certain of that. Stick with that. If it's restlessness and anxiety, you're concerned about the future, remind yourself, okay, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, you know, with all this fracking around, who knows? There might be an earthquake in Boston. <laughs> and whatever happens, I, I'm, you know, I can put up all these plans and everything, but who knows if you know, what I'm anticipating is going to happen. But if something really out of the way happens, I do know that I will need more mindfulness and I will need more alertness. Let's work on that now. So that's a way of thinking of getting your, kind of corralling your restless thoughts in and bringing them back to the present.
As for sleepiness, or, or I love that sloth and torpor. It sounds like <laughs> sounds like Socrates was a torpedo fish. Um, do you remember that? It's, it's in one of the in one of the Platonic dialogues. Someone accuses Socrates of being a torpedo fish because <laughs> he makes you torpid. <laughs> yeah. And so, okay, when you, how you deal with sleepiness? Okay, you get up and you walk around a bit. Pull your ears. Um, if you had anything that you've memorized, chant that to yourself. And now, of course, nowadays when I do my chants to overcome sleepiness, it, that's you know, passages from the Pali. When I hadn't memorized anything from the Pali, I had one thing that I'd memorized from high school that I could remember, which was the Jabberwocky. <laughs> that kept me awake, you know. <laughs> So with each of the hindrances, once you recognize it's a hindrance and you can pull yourself back, okay, then you know what to do. And this is what these lists are for, so you can pull yourself back from being so totally in, involved and immersed. Because normally when greed arises or sensual desire arises, the object of your desire really is desirable. When there's ill will, the person you feel ill will for really does deserve your ill will, and so on down the line. And you've got to learn how to get out of that thing where you believe your hindrances. Step back and have a little bit of distance from them. That's what the purpose of these lists are for. Similarly with the factors for awakening, you see something good arising, okay, you know this is something I've got to maintain. It's not like a moment of concentration comes and you say, oh, that's a moment of concentration. It is in, it is in constant stressful and not self and let it go. This is something else you want to develop. And the same with all the other mindfulness, what they call analysis of qualities, trying to figure out what's there in your mind. Persistence, rapture, concentration, serenity, equanimity, these are things that you want to develop in a balanced way. So in each of these cases, the Buddha is giving you a framework for figuring out what I need to do in terms of my experience right now. So this is why we study, so give ourselves this framework and so you can step back and identify, rather than identifying with, with something, you can identify this is something that's separate from my awareness and I, the next question is, what do I do with it? That's, why, what, that's what the purpose of the study is for. And so you learn to think of things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Okay, what, is this something skillful to be developed, or is this something unskillful that I've got to learn how to get past, learn how to let go of? Once you figure that out, then the fourth quality the Buddha recommends is what he calls practice the Dharma in accordance with the Dharma. Now this has two meanings. One is that you don't try to interpret the Dharma in line with your greed, aversion, and delusion. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what a lot of people do. And this is. According to John Suwat, who, who is my teacher in, in California, he spent a lot of time with the John Munn. He says this was the teaching of John Munn would practice stress over and over and over again. Is we're not here to practice the Dharma in accordance with Thai custom or Laotian custom. And this is one of the interesting parts of the forest traditions. We you know we think of it now as the Thai forest tradition and label it as a very much a part of the Thai culture. But that back in those days, it was considered very radical. The people would get into big arguments about a John Munn because he wasn't practicing the way other Thai monks did. But he's saying here, I'm not looking to practice in line with any particular customs. I'm here to practice the Dharma in accordance with the Dharma, which is something we should think about as we think about trying to make an American Dharma. Um, do we really want to make it in line with American defilements or an American, you know, good good American qualities that we can recognize within ourselves? The other aspect of practicing the Dharma in accordance with the Dharma is that you practice for the sake of dispassion. Because, as I said earlier, that the way we are suffering is, comes from the way we fabricate our experience. In other words, we bring our attentions, 
to fabricate the present moment. And it's our passion for a particular type of thing that keeps us fabricating, fabricating, fabricating all the time. Now, fabricating here doesn't mean lying. It means just that we are shaping our experience. And if we can get some dispassion for the way that we shape experience in a way that leads to suffering, okay, that's going to get us beyond suffering. Now, for a lot of us, dispassion has a connotation of being someone who is totally world-weary and is, is kind of lifeless. But you look at the Great Awakened Masters, and they're not lifeless people. And tonight I'd like to focus on a quality of dispassion that tends to get overlooked, which is a sense of humor. You're able to step back from your old ways of doing things and say, Oh my gosh, what a fool I was. Or how foolish that is, and you can laugh at it and you can put it aside. That's probably the most effective way of dealing with a lot of your defilements. You know, we look at those pictures of a John Munn. You've probably seen the one where it looks like he's you know, glaring right through you. Um, and you wonder, what kind of humor, sense of humor does this person have? <laughs> and Well, two things. One is, back in those days, when you were taking your picture, it, usually it was going to be the picture, you had maybe one picture taken of you during your life, and it was going to be the picture that was going to be put next to your coffin. And so you don't want a picture of grinning at somebody while you're <laughs> it's going to be placed in front of your coffin, so you're serious. Okay? Secondly, the, the picture has been doctored. I saw the original, of the, 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 the really famous John Munn picture, and he's not quite staring at you with that intensity. Um, third, the people who live with John Munn said they had a really nice sense of humor. And it was his ability. Because you imagine, you're out in the forest and you're you know, suffering all kinds of things. They lived in malarial forests and they were living with, in a situation where they didn't have that much food. And one of the best ways of getting through difficult situations is having a good sense of humor. Uh, this is a principle that you see all over the world. I, there's a story of that man, Samuel Hearn, who was one of the first white men to basically entrust himself to some Native Americans. He wanted to go across the Northwest Territories to check a place where there was a, a copper mine. And the only people who would take him were a group of Dene Indians. And so, um, so he went with them. And he noticed that there were days when they were able to catch, you know, hunt and catch food, and there were days when they couldn't. And so on the days when they couldn't, they would just sort of cinch up their belts and tell jokes all the way through the, through the day to keep everybody in a good humor. So this is one of the ways that you deal with difficulties. It's also one of the ways that you learn how to look at your greed, aversion, and delusion and say, boy, that is foolish. I don't want that. Um, one of my favorite stories about a John Munn's sense of humor had to do with a John Fuang, who was my teacher. John Fuang went when he was still a young monk, and there was a group of nuns who lived down the road. And one of the young nuns decided she really liked a John Fuang. And so he'd see these special little foods in his bowl in the morning, or she would knit little things for his, his spoon and his fork. Um, <laughs> and so John Munn was watching what was going on. And so he noticed that John Fuang wasn't interested, so he decided to turn his attention on the nun. And so there was one day when the nuns came for, for instructions. And he asked them if they were observing their eight precepts, and they said yes. And he said, um, he told them the story about Lady Wisaka, who was visiting a group of people observing the eight precepts, and they were in sort of in different groups. And so she went from group to group to group to ask them, you know, what are you, why are you practicing the eight precepts? She got this group of old people, and they said, we're, you know, we're getting old in our lives now, and we're thinking about what's going to happen after death, and so we decided we'd, we want to go to heaven. So we're practicing the eight precepts. So she goes from group to group and finally gets to a group of young women and asks them, and says, we want something better than heaven. We want a husband. <laughs> and John Fung said, the special food disappeared, the knitted stuff disappeared. That was the end of it. Um, 
So that, that's an example of a John Munn's humor. <laughs> and you read in the various Johns. I mean, John Cha is famous for his humor. I'd, I'd recommend that you also look at a John Lee's Dharma Talks. He's got some really great passages. He's got that story about the, the slave who's jealous of the dog. Do you know that one? This poor slave is working at this one family, and they have a, they've invited this private Buddha to come in every day for the meal. And the slave's duty is to carry the, bowl, the Buddha, private Buddha's bowl and bag up to the door of the house. He's not allowed in the house. Um, and then as, and when the private Buddha comes out, he'll take his bowl and his bowl and his, bowl and his bag, and they'll take him out to the, the outer gate. And one day he's, he's allowed in the house. And as he's going in, he sees this dog um, who's eating rice and, and fine curries off of a silver dish. And he goes back and he tells his wife, and we get only the worst rice in the house. You have, to, you have to pound the rice every day. I have to go out and I have to cut the wood for this. That We would have been better off if we'd been born as dogs, <laughs> like that dog. And so the next couple of days he follows the monk in and out of the house. And then there's one day when he, he has a heart attack and dies. And so his spirit is hanging around the house. So the, the monk, he sees the monk going in, he goes in with the monk. And there was one day when the monk was invited in, and he was given lots of gifts from the, from the couple who were in the house. And so on the way, the way out, he's carrying the gifts out. The dog sees this and starts barking at him, thinking that he's stolen something. And the spirit of the slave goes into the dog, into his mouth, and then it gets stuck. He can't get out. <laughs> and so there he is in the dog. And, and so they notice that the dog is starting to misbehave, and he can't stay in any place, and it's sleeping places it shouldn't, and it's doing things it shouldn't in the house. So they put it downstairs with the other dogs, and pretty soon it, it mates with a female dog, and then this, this, the spirit of the slave gets reborn in the puppy. <laughs> now, can you imagine a Dharma talk? <laughs> You're sitting there meditating, hearing this. And so John Lee goes on about the, the poor little the spirit inside the dog. And so... <laughs> And so then finally he gets born, and because he's been running around inside, the, inside the, the mother, as soon as he gets born, his eyes are wide open, he can run around. And he sees the private Buddha, and he goes up to him, and he you know, grabs his bag, and, and he's just so happy to see them. And the, the couple who run the house, they're, 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 they really feel a lot of affection with the little puppy, because he's just such an enthusiastic supporter of this private Buddha. And so he's allowed in the house. And then the next day it so happens that this is the last day that the private Buddha is going to be invited into the house. And so he turns to the couple and says goodbye to them. And then he turns to the dog and he says, okay, this is going to be my last year here. I don't want you following me back to the forest. I have to go back to the forest now. And so the dog dies of a broken heart. And the next thing you know is he's a deva up in heaven. <laughs> and so the moral of the story is when you're meditating, don't go chasing after dogs. <laughs> As John Fuang says, that back when John Lee was alive, that they'd have these all-night sits, and they'd have one monk giving a Dharma talk at every hour of the night, and a John Lee would wait for the 3 a.m. shift, because he knew that was the point where people were really falling asleep. And he'd tell something like this, and that would get them kind of over, <laughs> over the 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. hump. And so what I'm saying here is that this quality of dispassion is not just kind of a dead lifeless, I don't care about life anymore. It's, it's more of stepping back, and this is what we have the practices for, is learning how to step back from our concerns, our ordinary concerns, our ordinary defilements, basically, and realizing, this is really dumb. Why am I following this? And you can learn how to disidentify through humor, and it's one of the most effective ways 
of cutting through you know, a lot of a lot of the problems of the mind. So these are some of the ways in which you take what you've learned. In other words, these various frameworks: the Four Noble Truths, the Five Aggregates, the the six sense spheres and, and whatnot. Learn to use them as a framework for looking at your life. And then you can figure out, okay, what's the skillful thing to do in any particular situation? And it's good to have good frameworks. This is why we study the Dharma. So it gives us particular advice on you know, what's going to be the skillful thing to do in this particular situation. So it's not irrelevant to the practice. We're not here just being barely aware. And we're not here just getting in touch with some innate you know, quality of the mind. We're actually training ourselves and learning how to look at ourselves more skillfully so we can step back from our unskillful habits, recognize them as stuff and as such, and then learn how to let them go. And so this is why we study. And so if you're studying and you find yourself getting involved in a lot of Abhidhamma technicalities, you may say, well, this is getting off, off the track a bit. But if you find yourself reading in terms of, okay, how does this apply to the Four Noble Truths? How does this apply to the way I'm making myself suffering? What lessons do I learn here that I can apply? Okay, then that kind of study is actually going to be helpful for the practice. So that was basically what I have to say for tonight. Um, we, have a, we go right into the questions. Does anyone want to stand up for a minute before we... No, do we have a traveling mic, or how do we do this? found um, reading books, uh, I've read quite a few, um, written by contemporary writers on, mm -hmm. on the Dharma and listening to Dharma talks, mm -hmm. very useful. Mm -hmm. um, I have found it difficult, or I have really not gotten into reading the Buddha's words because uh, I find his words in the old texts mm -hmm. so... Um, Difficult to relate to it, it, the language, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the concepts, the era they were written in. I, I just find myself kind of put off or puzzled or just, just find it hard to relate to. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. Okay, one, one thing you might want to look at is, have you ever checked the study guides on access to insight? Where they have different, different pas short passages that are related to a particular topic. And there's kind of a you know a progressive um, approach to the, each particular topic, and that can get you kind of into the language and into the into the thought world of the time. I mean, one of the problems with the suttas is the way they're arranged. Was they're arranged in such a way that it was easy to memorize, um, but without much interest in sort of making it easy to comprehend. 
<laughs> and so they don't start from sort of you know basics and working their way up. It's more you know this particular sutta. Although one of the interesting things about the way they're organized, um, both in the Majjhima and in the Dika Nikaya, is in the very first sutta the Buddha will talk about what the Dharma is not. So he points out a long list of wrong views. And it's, it's good to have that kind of background, because he, that's one way of clearing the air. About, okay, he's not talking about this, he's not talking about that, he's not making this assumption or that assumption. He's focused on... I mean, what was really radical for him, and on the one hand, it is important to see him in, in the context of his time, and the other ways, in other ways, it's important to see that he was not typical of his time. I mean, he starts out by saying he was looking for the deathless, which was an old concept throughout Indian thought, that the, you, know, you want to find something that doesn't die. The question was, how do you find that? And it was his, his insight. He says, you look at the way the mind is causing itself suffering. And that was his instinct. That was his, that was his basically, insight. And so he's focused on the issue of, okay, what is, what is suffering? Why is it caused? How can you put an end to it? And there were lots of other issues that were floating around at the time. You know, is, it, is, is the self the same as the, is your soul the same as your body? Is it different from your body? Is the world eternal? Is it not eternal? Is it finite or is it infinite? He basically said, I'm not interested in answering those questions. So it's important to see the things that he put aside and said no to. Um, probably for the rest of this evening, when people ask, what would be a good book to read, I'm going to recommend one of mine. <laughs> In this particular case, there's a book called Skill and Questions, which talks about how the Buddha would approach a question, which questions he thought were worth answering, which ones were not. And then he had, he had a, basically a, a schema for which questions to answer, basically yes, no, which questions, questions you had to rephrase the question before he would answer it, which questions he said that you'd, first you question the person who questioned you to sort of see what they're getting at or what misunderstandings they have, then you answer. And then the questions that he totally put aside. Now the problem with the book is it's a long book. So you might want to just kind of read through the introductions to each, each chapter. And then if there's a particular topic you're interested in, you can go into that. But as for you know, basic concepts like karma, um, the Ten Perfections, those kind of things, you might want to look at these study guides that are on Access to Insight, because it takes a concept and kind of carries it through as to what the Buddha had to say on that, on that particular topic. And that can get you into the kind of the thought world. As far as the style, you have to remember that these were written to be memorized. And so there's a fair amount of repetition. Now repetition is music is fine. In ancient texts it gets kind of wearisome. But if you can remember, okay, this was meant to be chanted, this was meant to be recited aloud. Cut them a little slack. <laughs> <laughs> So that's what I recommend. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. um, I, I very much appreciate going to the texts. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I enjoyed going into um, the suttas and just finding my own little favorite suttas. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the Satipatthana and the Anapanasati and all of the others, but to explore the, the suttas in the other texts, um, very uh, rich experience. Even reading the Vinaya, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's uh, 
uh, when I'm in the library here, I'll open that up and just look at it. And there's so much history in that, in terms of the, what the bhikkhus and the bhikkhunis have to uh, deal with. But my simple question to you is, have we translated all of the canon? No. No, there's, um, there's a, a section that's called the Apadanas, which were probably a very late addition to the canon, and there's also something called the Jula Nadesa and the Mahanadesa, which have not been translated at all. Um, um, the Jula Nadesa and Mahanadesa are basically commentaries on suttas in the Sutta Nabata. And then the Apadanas. This is the part of the canon that I really don't like. And I'll tell you why. It was written during a period when they had large monasteries and there was a concern that they needed to make sure that people made, made donations to the monasteries. This was after King Ashoka. And so you read a lot of stories about so-and-so making a donation to a monastery and being guaranteed arahantship, you know, X number of lifetimes done. And you get an idea what's going on. Um, now some of the stories are pretty cool. Um, and they're kind of fun, but you have to wade through a lot of stuff, realizing that these are monks who are trying to get donations out of people, which is why I have a creepy feeling about it. And there's a there's a sect in Thailand right now that makes a lot of use of these, which makes it even creepier. Um, called the Dhammakaya sect. They really, you know, they they've got this. They have what they call your housing plan for a Nirvana. <laughs> you make a monthly donation, and you're guaranteed a plot in heaven. You make a larger donation, you're guaranteed to be a millionaire until nirvana. I mean, it's really sleazy stuff. Um, at any rate, um, a couple of the stories in the Abhidhana, though, are fun. One of my favorites is of this um, one man who wants, in addition to just to being an arahant, he wants some come to the bells and whistles. And he hears this one monk being praised by a previous Buddha from many aeons past as being the monk with the nicest voice. He said, that's something I want. And so he makes the donation to that Buddha, and he makes his vow that this is what I want. And so the Buddha, that particular Buddha, confirms, yes, someday in the future we'll be that, you'll be that monk. And so, in one of his later lives, he gets born as a bird. And then <clears throat> one day he sees the Buddha of that era, and so he's so overcome with you know just how beautiful this Buddha is, with radiant light and everything coming out. So he plucks he plucks a mango from the tree and comes hovering up in front of the Buddha with a mango in his beak. And so the Buddha asks his attendant for the bowl, and he takes the bowl, and the bird lands on the edge of the bowl, puts the mango in the bowl, and then sings this beautiful song in favor of them. So that's how he gets the good voice. <laughs> as long as you don't take this seriously, it's fun. Um, <laughs> but there's a problem here. In one of his later lives, another Buddha has passed away. And people want to build a jetty, and they don't want any limit on top of the, on how long, tall this jetty is going to be. And so they ask the king, and the king is about to give his permission. The king has a general who says, you know, this is going to be really wasteful. We could use all that stuff for other purposes. And so they put a limit on how tall the jetty is going to be. And so he finally gets born in the time of our Buddha, and because of his, you know, the, the vow that he made and the song that he sang, he's got this really nice voice. However, because he put a limit on how tall the jetty is, he's going to be born as a dwarf. <laughs> so that's, I think that's one of the reasons why these things haven't been translated. <laughs> There's a question in the back. Uh, thank you. So, um, I have all these books, you know, mm -hmm. the uh, middle-length discourses, the mm -hmm. long discourses, the mm -hmm. 
numerical discourses, mm -hmm. and some ideas about how to proceed. I mean, I've read a fair amount of suttas, famous mm -hmm. suttas, the Metta Sutta, the mm -hmm. Satipassana Sutta, the Anapanasati Sutta, and you know, lots of suttas that we hear about. Mm -hmm. um, but, and I find the study guides quite useful in access to insight, but aside from that, I, I find I'm not really, mm, I, I feel I need some guidance about uh, some kind of systematic way of proceeding. And I'm aware of, say, you know, Lee Brasington has a site um, in which he gives some suggestions for what suttas to read, when and why, and in what order. Um, but I, I feel a little bit adrift in you know, organizing my reading. Mm -hmm. um, I'm about to put out a recommended syllabus for the Majima. In, oh, in, yeah? term, in terms of which ones to read on which topics. So it'll, uh, it'll appear on Dhamma Talks. Excuse me? DhammaTalks.org. Oh, and when might that be? Um, as soon as I get back to California. Oh, fantastic. Mm -hmm. So. Because I, I just put this together for a group of my students well, who are going through the Majima right wonderful. now. Wonderful. Okay. So how... Timely. Yes. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Question over here. So first of all, it's really, really cool that you came all this way. And thank you so much. It's just, just it's splendid. Colder, yes. <laughs> Get cold. Well, yeah. that's true. Um, so, the study and the practice, how, um, how do you incorporate um, dialogue with your, with your buddies mm -hmm. and in, the in the study and practice, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we talk about, you know, list just in this setting, we have a person up there and mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. ask um, questions. Ask, ask questions. Mm -hmm. um, but I've seen other settings as well where there's much less of a single defined teacher mm -hmm, and more mm -hmm. of like a peer mm -hmm, thing. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you had any suggestions on how how we can um, best... Learn how to run a peer group? <laughs> um, have somebody in the background that, okay, when you're discussing something in the group and you, find, and you can't agree on something, so okay, there's somebody we're going to go to that we trust that we can kind of tap into. Um, that's always good, because otherwise it's kind of the blind leading the blind through whatever. Um, in my own case, I really didn't get involved in discussion of suttas too much until I actually came here to the st back to the States. Um, and then the questions came up as to, I was, I was telling our re talk leader today that you know, teaching the Ajahn Lee method in a, in a world where everybody else had done Mahasi, People kept saying, what, what is this weird meditation you're teaching? Is that anything to do with the Buddhist teachings at all? And so I went back and I started finding passages in the canon that seemed to corroborate what Ajahn Lee was teaching. Um, so that was my kind of my introduction to the, you know, the study as, as, a, as a group, um, talk, you know, talking with the other monks and trying to get, get things sorted out that way. Um, there's always going to be this element that each person is going to have to finally say, okay, this is what it seems to mean to me, and then I've got to test it. That's that's the best way to <laughs> to proceed. <laughs> yes, we're here. 
Wait, 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 Mike. They want to get this on tape. You mentioned our, <clears throat> our addiction to the uh, five activities the Buddha called um, the aggregates, mm. uh, clinging to them. Mm. Um, and you mentioned the perception labeling the hunger, mm. certain hungers. And you mentioned uh, hunger for affection. Mm -hmm. Now, when you, dig, when you see this hunger for affection, in other words, or it could be as easy as someone sl slights you, or, or, and then you're, you're taken aback, well, why don't they like me? Mm -hmm. and, you, and then you, you look deeper. And it's a feeling like in the middle of your chest. It's a feeling of lack. Mm -hmm. That you, something's lacking. Why? What is it? Mm -hmm. it's a, I, I want people, you want people to like you because there's a lack there that needs to be filled. Yeah, and there's a certain perception that you're holding around that, that I'm the person who needs to be, who should be appreciated. Right. Like, they and this no is reason. not being confirmed. There's no reason for them not to like me. Yet yeah, they yeah. don't. You know, I can't think. <laughs> So well, who knows? I mean, there's, there's that famous story that Alan Wallace tells about how he was in a, in a store one time and somebody bumped into him. And he was about to turn around and say, what, are you blind? He looked around, the guy really was blind. My question is that, that yeah. lack, where does yeah. that come from? You see it and it's there, and you think, well, why is it that? I know from the, from the study mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that it's, there's some kind of delusion there, and my mind is fabricating that. Yeah, okay, there's a particular perception about you and how you should be treated by other people. And there's also a sense that something in there needs to be reaffirmed by your interactions with other people. There's, something, there's some, some sense I'm really not quite right, but if I t somebody tells me I'm okay, I feel okay. And, and then if they, someone comes up, because you, you know there's both aspects to you. There's the skillful side and there's the unskillful side. Right. And... You'd rather not look at the unskillful side. And so when someone starts treating you this way, either you start looking at the unskillful side and say, well, yeah, they're right, I really am a scum. Or else you go into denial, and this person is a total idiot. And neither way is really helpful. And sometimes there's, there's no basis that you can see that they wouldn't yeah. like you. And mm -hmm. you still feel that lack. You still want them. That's based on what? That's based on your sense. Okay, I know that there's still something not quite right with my mind. Yeah. And I'm looking for reassurance that I'm actually okay. And so you have to go back and say, okay, I can be at ease with the fact that there's things that are not going well in my mind. Um, and I've got work to do. And as long as I can feel that I'm working as best I can to deal with that problem, then the problem is not that big a sore. But if, if, you, if you have some sense, okay, I'm not working hard enough on this, or I'm not good enough, then, then when someone comes and re reaffirms that idea, it hurts. And so part of it learn, is learning how to be, I wouldn't say okay about your unskillful side, but realize, okay, here's work I've got to do, and it's okay that I'm working on it. It's better than not working on it. Why can't you just look at it and it, and it goes? Because you see it. <laughs> there it is. Because this is an old habit. It's, it's, it's old, yeah. old karma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Now, in my own case, when I was looking after John Fuhrer when he was sick, I, I was not the best nurse. You know, I always like to think that I was really kind and compassionate, and he had his way that he wanted to be treated, and I wanted him to treat some other way. You know? And so he was constantly you know, saying, no, this is wrong, that's wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And I kept thinking, well, I can't do anything right, but then there was no, else to, no one else to look after him. So I finally said to myself, and I was the kind of kid who always wanted to excel at everything. 
and if something I didn't excel at, I just wouldn't do. Yeah. And so here was a case I had to do something that I wasn't excelling at, and I had to say, okay, I may not be the best person to do this job, but I'm the only one here. Let me live with that. And then his comments, it was easier to take his comments and learn from them. So a lot of it has to do with you know, ego and feeding the ego. And then learning to say, okay, I can, I can deflate my ego a little bit, and then it's not so bad. Anything else? Really, a general question about tradition. A friend of mine just came back from Thailand and showed me uh, photos of temples he visited. Mm -hmm. and it's really not about the wisdom of practice as much as uh, it occurred to me that I don't understand why Buddha here, for example, they're all different. Mm -hmm. um, is the Buddha, and you mentioned today's Buddha and Buddha's passing, isn't the tradition, is the Buddha a person mm -hmm. or is it a law? There have been many Buddhas in the past, but the, when you see a Buddha image in Thailand, it's our Buddha, basically. And why would you want to have all the Buddhas the same? Okay, so there are different, there are many Buddhas. Okay, there are many Buddhas, but all, what, what you'd see in Thailand at the, at the, at the, you know, at the front of a, of, a, of a shrine like this will be the one Buddha that, we've, that we all know from you know, um, Siddhartha Gautama. And it's just that there are lots of different styles. There's the different images will portray different events in his life. Like, what's this one? The hand on his knee, like this. This is supposed to be calling the earth to witness right before his awakening. When Mara comes up and says, what right do you have to be Buddha? And the Buddha says, okay, have, mother, have the earth goddess come and speak in, my, speak in my defense. And so she comes up and wrings out her hair, which is supposed to symbolize all the merit that he's created over the many eons. And this is washes the forces of Mara away. This story is not in the canon, but it's a very popular story. But usually they, 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 there are few places in Burma where you will see statues of previous Buddhas, but um, in Thailand almost all, every place I've seen it's, it's our, our Buddha, let's put it that way. I had a question following up from the question about specific things we mm -hmm. notice mm -hmm. coming up in our own minds during mm -hmm. our practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have recommendations for how to find help on specific topics? Because given that the suttas are organized in the way that they are, which was meant for chanting, it can mm -hmm. be hard to see something come up a lot, like I can't get rid of doubt when mm -hmm. I have to make a decision, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then try to actually find um, you know, skillful guidance on dealing with that problem in our own minds. Mm -hmm. Well, this again, if you look at the, some of the study guides, we'll have passages on that or related to those particular issues. Um, I've also found you know teachings by John Lee and John Mahabua are very helpful in that way. John Cha, you have to be a little bit more careful because there's a lot of mistranscribed John Cha talks that then got translated into English, and there's there's some strange stuff um, that you have to be very careful about reading that. Um, I, I tend to find the Forest of Johns tend to speak a little bit more directly to these kinds of issues than you find in the canon. But th that's a good place to start. Question over here. 
I was just wondering if you could elaborate on, you mentioned about compassion, how uh, from what I understood, what you said, uh, there's not some kind of innate wellspring of compassion there, mm -hmm. like it's within. Could mm -hmm. you elaborate on that a little bit? Okay, there's, a, there's an interesting passage in the canon where King Basenity is up in his private apartment with his favorite queen. And in a moment of tenderness, he turns to her and says, is there anyone you love more than yourself? Now, being a king and being a typical guy, he's, <laughs> he's expecting her to say, yes, your majesty, you, you know. Um, but this is the polycanon, come on. Um, and so she says, no, and how about you? Is there anybody you love more than yourself? He says, well, no, not really. So that's the end of the scene. <laughs> and so... She, the king goes down to see the Buddha and, the Buddha and tells the Buddha what had happened. And the Buddha says, you know, she's right. You could search the whole world over and you would never find anyone that you would love more than yourself. And you'll find everybody else loves themselves that fiercely as you love yourself. And the conclusion he draws from that is never harm anybody. Interesting conclusion. In other words, and, but there's two reasons there. One is that you know, if you're harming other people, you know, where is your empathy for them? The fact that they're looking for the same kind of happiness you are, and you're, and you're willing to just kind of ride rough shot over that. Are you being fair? And then the second one is if your happiness depends on other people's misery, they're not going to stand for it. They're going to do what they can to stop it. If you want a lasting happiness, you cannot make it depend on other people's suffering. That is the beginning of compassion. And so when we see that, okay, it's in our best interest to be kind to other people, that's when we'll be kind. And when you realize, okay, if I harm anybody, it's going to come back at me, another good reason to be kind. That's where compassion comes from. And then you cultivate it by thinking about other people's suffering and other people's desire for happiness. And so you get a sense of empathy. Thank you. Um, you mentioned the American Dhamma, or something like that, not really existing yet. Um, and I just wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit more, because I'm, I'm very new to this, and mm -hmm. um, I'm finding a lot of things that I'm learning through coming here and through studying are really at odds with how I've been raised to think as an American, mm -hmm. and especially right now, this age, like to make something of yourself and um, I'm just trying to figure out how to make things work make together. Things work together. <laughs> okay, um, you've got two problems. One is that um, there's a lot of stuff in American Dharma which has nothing to do with what the Buddha taught. And so he's never saying that you, you shouldn't try to make something of yourself. He says you try to make you know try to make yourself the best person possible. Um, he, he's not down on having a healthy ego. There's um, you can, there's a, there's a, uh, um, there's an article online in Dhamma Talks called "The Wisdom of the Ego." You might want to look at that. But you have to realize that when the, when the Buddha was teaching in India, it was also not in line with Indian culture. There are a lot of things that were going against the culture. With the forest tradition, it was going against Thai culture. And in America, a lot of the genuine Dharma is going to come go against American culture. I'm in the midst of writing a book right now called Buddhist Romanticism 
which is making the point that most of what we learn about the Dharma in the West actually has more to do with the German Romantics than it actually had to do with the Buddha. Um, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for this. <laughs> but um, So it's good for us to check, and when you hear something in a Dharma talk, you say, wait a minute, let's double-check that against some of the other more reliable sources. Um, and then, but there are a lot of things going on in American culture that are really kind of sick, and this is one of the re- one of the good things about the dramas allows you to step back. It's okay. There's a lot of attitudes they have out there about how we should treat one another and what what what's really worthwhile in life. And it's good to ask, you know, put a question mark next to them. Is this, do I really want to get sucked into this? You know, th- this way of viewing things. I mean, for me, going to Thailand was really valuable just for that purpose. Was being in another culture. Um, then finding myself up alone on a mountain <laughs> and sort of sorting through issues from school and early adulthood and that kind of thing and getting a, a different perspective on them. Um, go down to see a John Fuang, sometimes he'd give me good advice and sometimes he'd look at me as, what the hell did you get that problem? <laughs> I mean, I realized, okay, this is something really you know, culturally American. Um, and then coming back after 16 years and seeing that you know, America is a really strange place. And, and it's, you, you can live much more health and healthily in a country like that when you can step back and see it from a little bit of a distance. So if you can't get out of the country, then try to imagine yourself, okay, what in my environment am I picking up that I really don't believe in? I mean, one of the things we're lacking in our culture, which I think everybody could benefit from, is a rite of passage. When you take some time off, basically say, okay, this stuff that I've been learning ever since I was a little child, to what extent, what, what out of this do I want to carry into my adulthood, and which of it I'm going to just leave behind? So if you can find some way of taking some time off and asking yourself those questions, that'll help a lot. Hmm. Question over here. I just want to thank you so much for all of the writings that you've done. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Um, They're not quite 9,000, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, something you actually said at a different talk that really has stuck with me, um, and it came out of a question that someone else had asked mm-hmm. about the difference between causing harm and causing suffering, mm-hmm. and that it was really helpful for me to see that... Um, Sometimes in saying no or setting a boundary or doing something, it will cause suffering for that person because of their own attachment. Right. <laughs> um, and I really got it when you, when you gave the talk a few years ago, and now a whole new set of life circumstances <clears throat> have come up that have made that very difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> there's also something about the distinction between... Um, discerning between condemnation and judgment mm-hmm. and choosing and I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit or at least or just point towards some literature to kind of Well there's a there's an article that I wrote called The Power of Judgment and there's also in the toward the end of the book uh, with each and every breath there's a there's a passage on you know, the principles you use to judge a teacher but a lot of them also have to do with how you judge a person that you can live with, or decide that you cannot live with that person, um, and so you might want to look at those those two writings. Okay, I'll have to listen to the recording because I just forgot what you just said. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no, it was um, the the, t- the, uh, the article is called Sorry. the power of the power <laughs> that was of judgment. Of 
<laughs> the power of judgment. Power of judgment. Okay. And then at the end of the book, um, with each and every breath. Okay. Um, okay. Great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. There was another hand over there. You, uh, you talked a moment ago about uh, rites of passage mm-hmm. um, and about adulthood. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you had a concept of when adulthood comes, when it happens, mm-hmm. or whether it's something that can occur at any point in your life, this rite of passage. Okay, it's, it's basically could come at any time in your life. Okay. okay. Yeah. That's good enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us never quite reach adulthood, you know. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you for your attention. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Hey, by the way, if anybody in the very first row or very last row wants to help by moving their cushions, that would be much I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I've got a ride. Okay. No, thank you. Hello. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.